Hello, this is Patrick Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine, and welcome back to the Goldmine Magazine podcast. Our guest will be Robert Criscow, the great rock and roll critic. And he has two books coming out. Um, one is already out, and it's called Is It Still Good to You? And it's 50 Years of Rock Criticism, 1967, 2017. And we'll be talking mostly about that. But in April, he also has book reports coming out and it's um you know a music critic on his first love which was which is reading and it's really good i mean most of what we're going to talk about is it still good to you but uh this is also a very good book as well and it comes out in april it really captures the essence of his passion for reading and uh, i liked it a lot and it does have some music music in there that he talks about especially james brown a nice chapter about James Brown. Um, and they're both put out by Duke University Press. So that one's coming out in April. Is It Still Good to You? Is out now. I recommend getting it. And we will be talking to Robert right after this message. Hey, I'm Ronald Webb, and this is Patrick Prince. And together we host the Goldmine Radio Hour, the show that features the latest issue of Goldmine. The Music Collector's Magazine. Tune in Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on CygnusRadio.com. So how are you? I'm okay. So two books are out, or one is coming out. Is it still good to you? And uh, that came out last year, right? The end of last year. It came out in... October. October, yeah, and then book reports uh, coming out Which this April. Due in April. Yeah, now I just got both this week, so I tried to gobble up as much as I could in them, and um, I started yeah, reading. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> these, are, these are long collections. Well, I enjoyed it. Um, I started reading book reports too. I, I didn't get to much of that, but what I enjoyed, and, and mostly we're going to talk about, is it still good to you? But um, I enjoyed your take on the joy of reading. Your introduction shows that it really hit me, your introduction. It reminds me of, you know, when I was a kid, the joy I felt when I first read something of what I considered significance outside, you know, the school syllabus. Like, uh, I remember reading a short story by Tennessee Williams called The Man in the Overstuffed Chair, and it was like a natural high. It was... um, you know, the the wordplay, the wit, that sort of deep thought poignancy. It's something no other medium captures, really. And well, it's, I would say, you know, that, you know, I'm a critic. That's how I've defined my professional calling. And it so happens that I seem to have a more or less infinite capacity for new music. Yes. Um, which is, a, a you know, which as a critic is one of my real gifts. But... But ultimately, it's writing. Yeah. I wanted to be a writer. And I have managed to be a writer, and I'm a somewhat more forceful and eccentric stylist than many people who do this kind of work. I love um, that. I think it's well, a, you, need a, yeah, so, you need a sense of humor. You need, you need something about your writing that is stylistic and sticks out. I don't think I really started to write the way I now believe I can until I'd been at The Voice for a few years, uh, A, being extremely well-edited, and B, being extremely free to do whatever I wanted. Did that, uh, did that both daily... Both things are essential. 
But um, but no, at the voice in particular, the voice um, encouraged you to write as well as you could. Didn't say you couldn't be personal, um, and that you had to be objective. Although some of their very best writers, like Wayne Barrett, really were. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and uh, and were very tolerant of eccentricity. And as a writer, I took advantage of that. As an editor, I encouraged it in my writers. Not yeah. be nutty. No. No. I be yourself. Find your own voice. Everyone is different. But there's a reason and, why the Beatniks are so popular because they were individualists. They just sort of let it stream out of them. And yeah, well, I see. I don't think. Well, I mean, that streaming thing. Yes. That's what it streams out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. Every once in a while, uh, the inspiration hits, and and you write something really good. Fast. I mean, there's a piece in Grown Up All Wrong called Why the Beatles Broke Up. Yeah. Uh, uh, that t- took me about 25 minutes. And as a matter of fact, a little thing about Dylan at the end mm-hmm. in, of this book, which is called, St- I, I gave the title Sticking It in Their Ear, that was written in 10 minutes. Wow. Um, uh, I was, I was, uh, I had already done this interview with this fanzine called Spiked, uh, which I've just started following on Twitter and isn't really a fanzine at all, it's a rather serious publication. Um, um, and and it took them so long to actually run it that meanwhile Dylan had won the Nobel Prize and they asked if I would answer a theoretical question about the Nobel Prize so I sat down there and I wrote it hmm. and you know it's a, it's about a hundred words or a little less um, and it's really good <laughs> so I put it in my book uh, it does happen yeah. sure uh, but usually nah you know Grill, my friend Grill Marcus he wrote it when the when the, when the, the stranded book mm. came out was reissued. He wrote a new introduction to it in twenty five minutes, <laughs> and it is absolutely terrific. I can't. I, that doesn't really happen to me very often. Once in a while. Once in a while. Well, I gotta say, um, the Village Voice just wasn't the same without you. Um, in fact, the vo- Village Voice wasn't itself. <laughs> the last few years um i can remember well the fact of the matter is that harvilla who who was put in to replace chuck eddy and then ended up replacing both of us probably making less money than either of us made alone yes that was the way that company was he's a really good writer rob harvilla a really good writer yeah uh so it but but i agree that in general the whole idea, the, the editorial philosophy of, imposed on him, yeah. and maybe he was more for it than me, was that uh, n- none of this cerebral stuff. Well, I mean, cerebral. a few years ago, I remember get, picking up uh, a voice with a couple friends, you know, Manhattanites. I live in Connecticut now, but, you know, when I say Manhattanites, they had only been there for 15 years, but still they considered themselves Manhattanites. But um, they saw me picking up and they said, oh, that's only for bridge and tunnel people now. Why do you read that? And I thought to myself, really? The village voice has sunk that low that you're you're saying that it's for just for people from out of town. It's just well, well, since I I never was very fond of the term bridge and tunnel people. Yeah, no. because I was a bridge and tunnel person. I yes. started reading the voice in Queens and did not when I was how old. Uh, 
14, uh, um, and uh, and didn't move to Manhattan until I was 20. Yeah. So. Well, I, th- I think they met because I was from Connecticut, you know, like I'm coming in like a tourist. But, you know, I lived in Manhattan for a while, too. I mean, so I don't know. They were just busting my chops, I think. But um, but anyway, back to, um, back to, you know, you've turned me on reading your stuff, and I think you've done this to many people who've read your, your stuff. I mean, uh, you turned me on to bands like Wire, you know, the you once uh, gave Pink Flag, uh, the, the album Pink Flag, album of the year, and I think that album's very underrated. It's incredible. Liz Fair, Tricky, PJ Harvey. I mean, the list goes on. All great yeah, stuff. Well, yeah, but that's all stuff that I did in the Consumer Guide. And the, and the work yes. that's collected here is for the most... I mean, I don't think... I, I was going to have a Liz Fair part, and I decided that the, I was going to do it two pieces, and the first one just seemed not good to me. It's a, it's a decision I regret. Um, uh, because the second one is great, and the first one was pretty good. And anyway, I just... I'm, I, I I would say that's my the thing I'm I'm uh, most unhappy about in the decisions I made. I, well, you but know, in any case, I, the, 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 none of those artists are people I've ever written about at length. Yeah. And um, I mean that doesn't mean that the you know the collected consumer guard reviews don't often add up to something, but yes. it's not the same thing as writing an essay. And, no. And it's no. In the, and in these books, I'm writing essays, even if a few of those pieces are really short. Because that's fun too. Well, it could turn it could be from an essay too. While I was reading, I I came across Wussy, which I you know was from a Barnes and Noble review in 2012, and you said they were the best band in America. So I'm going to go. I'm embarrassed that I never heard of them, and so I'm going to go out and and check them out. And, well, start with the first one, and then go to um, it's Attica. Attica. Okay, yeah, I have seen that. that yeah, that that is that's the one that most people like. But I think the first one is even better and and if you look at my site all, all of those albums get a's or a pluses until right. what heaven is like which i think is not and forever sounds which i think are not quite as good um uh but yes uh i i uh, I, I absolutely guarantee this band well i've heard uh it gotta get a little time don't expect to hit you the first time give it free four plays well that's some of the best bands lock right? in It'll lock in. Just lock in. I've heard one of uh, Dave Thompson, one of our writers, uh, said England's Goat Girl is a band to check out. I don't know if you've heard of them yet. Um, I'm going to write it down and check it on Spotify and probably not like it, but you never know. Uh, whenever, but, I, whenever anybody <laughs> says something like that to me who there's any reason, <laughs> England's Goat Girl? Yeah, they're all female. Um, but they're, they're just called Goat Girl. Yes. They're not, not called England's Goat Girl. No, okay. they're from England. Um, okay. He claims they're Elastica meets Libertines. Um, well, that's a good idea. Yeah, so... I, I, I swear to God, sometime in the next... Okay, I'll, I'll be on, looking. I'll put it on, I'll, no, no, I'll put it on my phone. That's what I... Yeah, I yeah. Mean, you know, Spotify, I don't really like... No, I don't either. But it is what it is. You've got to use it. Um, since nobody sends out promo copies of anything anymore, um, and there's really more music than there ever used to be, uh, checking it out by streaming it is uh, essential. But uh, I will say that if I'm going to write anything serious about a band, I want to own the physical, the physical copy. I don't blame you. And if it's download only, yes. which happens, I then burn it. Yep. 
and sometimes and it I, is because I, I use a changer. I, I one of the one of the techniques I've used for a long time is I stick five things in a changer, especially if the changer works, which I need a new changer, uh, and 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 often don't remember what I've done, and and sometimes it's completely random, but usually it's it's to go from one thing that's sort of like another thing and see how they compare. Mm. Um, and believe me, I mean, because, you know, my, my mind is very involved in my criticism. I use my mind all the time. I'm a brainy guy, kind of, a, you know, a self-made intellectual. But if you don't get... But there's something that happens with music that happens first. Mm. That's physical slash emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and it has to hit you there. And and I can tell sometimes my where I'm listening to one thing and it's it's okay, and then I listen to another thing, and that then without thinking about it, it's changed. Mm. And I notice that my mood has shifted. Mm-hmm. Oh, what did I put first there? What was that? What, and then I ask myself, I go back and check because I really often don't remember exactly what I did. And I found out so many things that way. Hmm. Uh, and it's letting your body do the listening, your body and your subconscious. Well, let me let me ask you, don't you think that music should be, there should be, I feel this way, I enjoy the physical copy. Of course, I work for Goldmine, which is a music collector's magazine. Right, a record but, collector's But magazine. I like the fact that I can sit there with a record, open the gatefold, put the record on. And, and you know, a lot of our readers are also, I say music collectors because they collect CDs. Um, they they also collect, um, you know, cassettes and A-tracks and memorabilia. But, you know, the thing about the physical is that you feel like you're part of it more. Um, you know, I, well, sometimes when I... Well, what I say is, well, I see, I would say, I would say exactly the opposite. mm I would say that what's important about the physical, and although I have an, a, a vinyl collection that would probably make most gold mine writers gruel, yes, drool, I almost never use it because huh. I because I listen to music all the time. Yeah, and and ninety percent of my listening is work listening and putting on, and and I have most of the LPs I like most on CD and indeed in my iTunes, and it's just simpler. To uh, to use those formats. Oh yeah. But 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 what the word I like to use about the physical is externality. Mm. The music has a physical reality outside of your head. Mm. And if you're only streaming, um, that's uh, once again I I I, re- I do truly believe that. Music as a utility, let's call it, has really changed the way most listeners relate to music. They relate to it as something internal to themselves, Mm -hmm. even if they actually have a speaker system, which, of course, many of them don't. Many people just use headphones, which which quadruples the invent. It really is inside your head only. Mm. And again and again and again, I I use headphones when all the time. I go to the gym, I'm on the stationary bike, I've always got music on, I've made great discoveries that way. Uh, 
because you you know there's really nothing else to do, so you concentrate in a way. Yeah, you know, I, I should. But ref- what I find is that I'm sorry to be interrupting. That's you. okay. But I what I find is that that effect on the stationary bike almost invariably exaggerates the quality of the music. That doesn't mean you can't alert yourself to something there or that or make discoveries to something there. I certainly have done that, and I'm very grateful that I get to do it. But I gotta get it home and put it on the speaker system and have it outside of my body. Yes. Before I'm sure I know what's really going on there. You know what I hate is when people call critics. Sometimes they call them too much of a fan. But I think there also needs to be that element of a fan. And I liked when I got that sense reading his own Shaman, which was uh, a review about the one. That's uh, right, by James Brown or Jay Smith. I got the sense that you you could feel that you were a fan of James Brown, not necessarily a fan of his behavior, but a fan of his music. <laughs> and you were kind of put off by reading certain things about his uh, personal behavior, but that didn't you st- stop you from loving the man's music, um, as sometimes it can do to a fan. Um, well, I can imagine situations in which it might happen, but with James Brown, this I mean, all the gory details weren't known, but the outline was certainly known a very long time ago, yeah. and there was simply no point in worrying about it, um, because the music swallowed it up. It did, uh, and, and the musicians. It, uh, uh, obliterated it. I didn't like how he treated his own musicians, because they were... They oh, were no. They were a godsend. They were a godsend to him. Um, he was as great I himself. In, as I say in that review, where, yes. when, when, when Jimmy Nolan died, his, said his guitarist, yeah. his, his, <laughs> Smith reports that he said, right. Nolan sent his wife over to say to Brown, Wait, my dying request is that whoever replaces me, you not treat him as bad as you did me. <laughs> what a great <laughs> thing to say. What a great thing to say. Uh, 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 um, but, I mean, James Brown, though, is maybe too extreme an example mm-hmm. because, in my opinion, for all the, 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 my love of Chuck Berry and, and, and acknowledgement of how important Elvis Presley was to cultural history, and I think he was a, quite a good musician, too, uh, although not quite as much as people believe, uh, um, uh, for me, and and for all the fact that I love the Beatles to pieces to this day and play more Beatles than I play any other music, hmm. I think James Brown is the most important musician to come out of the the the, the, yeah, uh, the Earth shift that happens around 1955, uh, which was always about rhythm. Only James Brown was the one who really understood what you could do with rhythm, and and that what Brown did was to make rhythm, mm. the articulation of rhythm, yes. the variation of rhythm, um, the, the compelling quality of rhythm, the Bach-like complexity of rhythm, uh, at the very center of what happened in popular music. There was a point in that review where you said that, um, you know, because Brown, he sang like a, a, gospel, a preacher, a gospel singer, uh, you said something in there about it wasn't so much that he believed in God, but he believed in 
I, I'm trying to think of the right words. They use. The way he sang it, the, the way, uh, the emotion of believing in God, you know, like almost like he believed in himself, like he was. Right. That's, that's right. He, that's very interesting. He, 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 I mean, you know, for all the fact, of course, he learned a lot of stuff in church, uh, as almost yes. every Southern black did. Yeah. Um, uh, um, it was the center of black culture. Um, um, but, but, uh, Unlike almost everybody, including yep. even Etta James, as I mentioned in my Etta yep. James piece in that book, yep. in, the, in, in Good to You, um, uh, he never made a gospel album. Mm-hmm. Like Elvis, right. <laughs> he never went over there and, and did that, you know, just cashed in. Okay, gospel album. <laughs> Here's a hundred grand. Kind of you know, happy that. about that. <laughs> what well, I just think it's kind of cool, that's all. Yeah, it's I do too. Cool. Now, now talking about, uh, you said that you regretted not putting a, a Liz Fair essay in. Um, is there anything? Was there ever an essay or something that you have written that was published that you regretted? Published, pu- re- pu- regretted publishing it. Yeah. Oh no. No. Sorry. Well, no, but no, I, mean, I mean, was I, I probably said a few things, but don't ask me to remember them right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Even if I did, I wouldn't tell you what they were. Uh, 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 well, you must have felt. Was there ever an artist you felt different from? You like maybe twenty well, years. Yeah, well, well, famously, when I went to Monterey, and this is when I've been a rock critic for like yes. four months. Yes, I called Jimi Hendrix a psychedelic Uncle Tom. Oh, and then um, <laughs> and I I did not choose to take that out of my collected works because yes. I'd said, said it. Yeah. And I actually could defend it. Right. On the other hand, what didn't happen for me, for me at, at Monterey, because I was rightly, I think, I thought the crucial factor in his Monterey performance, and I still do, that's mm. a legendary performance, and I've listened to it many times, and I do not think it's great Jimi Hendrix. So you're going to was say the guitar. The, was, the show, was the showmanship. Yeah, yeah. And he was, in fact, the fire. quite consciously playing to that yes. hippie audience. And indeed, it worked like a charm. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, you know, what I did not understand when I saw it was how self-conscious and kind of what, an arrogant wit to it. Did you feel that way when he... That I didn't see it. That, now when I now when I see the performance, I can see that that was going on, and I was just, I felt I felt there was a certain I I I can I perceived it as pandering. Only yeah. it's not pandering when you know exactly when it was manipulating. That's mm. different, <laughs> right? He was manipulating that audience. That's right, but that's different than pandering to it. Mm. He was on top. He was in control. He knew what he was doing. It was a conscious act, nonetheless. I, so I, 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 I shouldn't have said that. It has become. <laughs> was it was not. It was not a fortunate phrase, and uh, I did do it. And that so, setting that guitar on fire has become an iconic image in rock and roll. History. Exactly. I mean, he. I mean, you know, he was topping the show. Yeah. He, and 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 the other thing I didn't really understand, although I certainly knew more about live black music than most people at Monterey, because I actually went to the Apollo every once in a while. Yes. Uh, uh, which was really the only good place to see live rock and roll in 
Manhattan at that, you know, up till 67, there was really not much else, um, uh, was how important showmanship was throughout R&B and how much he had learned, as I eventually figured out when I read Charles Shaw Murray's wonderful book about Hendrix, um, uh, from being uh, for playing with the Isley Brothers, playing he played yes. with a lot of play, he played with a lot of people, and he learned he learned tricks everywhere he went because he was a smart guy <laughs> and a very ambitious guy uh, in a really good way. Um, so I missed that. Well, at least you never gave a bad review to uh, Sergeant Pepper, like uh, Richard Goldstein. <laughs> From the New York Times, I mean, I kind of. Well, Richard's a friend of mine. I mean, it's 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 uh, I shouldn't laugh. It just seems like, God, the Beatles fans are just uh, they'll never forgive him for that. He had he had forgiven, you know. Yeah, he was was right to say he was right to say one thing. Mm -hmm. He was right that, as with Jimi Hendrix, there was a certain kind of conceptualized audience mm. See, well, I don't want to say they, they they really were putting on a show just as they said at the beginning mm. they were putting on a show in a way they never really had before and and, and the reason I I still play Sgt. Pepper and as a matter of fact next to the Beatles second album which most pe- Beatles mm-hmm. fans don't even think exists because it's the American version rather than the English version <laughs> yes uh uh uh, uh it's actually still my the one I play most often because every song on it, except maybe for the George Harrison, which I've come to sort of mm. think was okay, um, uh, is great. Yes. Does it rock? No, it doesn't rock very much. Too bad. But they rocked in other places. You know, well, I mean, what was kind of too <laughs> deliberate was the Stones coming out with Satanic Majesties. That that um, uh, well let me say that I don't think Satanic Majesties is as bad a record as no, it's, it is either. It's not it's pretty good. It's not as it's not one of their best records, but it but that's only because they made so many great fucking records. Well back to the book, is it still good to you? I one of the essays I enjoyed was on the New York Dolls. Um and I ended you, the book with that I, Yes, that you is. did. And you've you've covered them since the beginning, right? Right. Well, they're really my, you know, emotionally kind of, they're my, they're the band I, 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 I uh, kind of identify with the most, even though, God knows, they were completely unlike me. All of that glam, sexual ambiguity stuff, mm-hmm. I'm not like that at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I used to hate Halloween because you had to wear a costume. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 but, but, but they're bridge and tunnel kids like me. They love pop. You can tell in the early work that they love R&B, too. They love 50s rock and roll, even yeah. though they were pretending, you know, they were making a big deal of their whiteness. Plus, David Johansson happens to be one of the most gifted performers and songwriters in the history of the music, period. And, and so what happened to that last essay, which was also the last piece I wrote for the village, the last I was just, I for the village. I was just going to ask that. Okay. It was not that, I mean, that this wasn't planned, Yes. right? The yes. record had come out, and it so happens that that that, that record, their first record in uh, over 30 years, is called 
One day it will please us to remember even this. And it is a great album. It's not a good album. It's a great album. I said so at the time, in the throes of first love. I have never thought I made a mistake. I still play that record. I love that record. And it's a record about... It's a, it's a record in which they simulate their youth, those of who, who are left, which is basically um, David and Syl, and I don't know, Kane, I think uh, Arthur had died by then too. Mm. So it was really just uh, Syl, who's now apparently on the outs with David. He, I, I just read his autobiography, which is sort of sad. Um, uh, and, 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 uh, and David... Um, David writing wonderful songs that are mostly about rebirth and Buddhism, even though he denies it. And and here, the, you know what? Something else. I'm not. I'm not a Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> but they're great songs. Yes. And 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 they are songs. And and so I ended the book with basically this artist I love, who was who I had. You know, I wrote a, a big piece about in Grown Up All Wrong, my Harvard anthology that came out in 1998. And in Stranded, which is where it came from, um, I, 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 there's a lot of death in that last section. I, you know, I was, as I'm writing, as I'm preparing this anthology, Prince dies, mm-hmm. David Bowie, but David Bowie dies, Prince dies, and 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 then Leonard Cohen dies. All in that year. Yes. I wrote about them all for Noisy, so they're all in there. Yep. Because that's a good way to end the book, and yep. also uh, there's a certain kind of life. <clears throat> thing about it, the whole book, but I loved finishing with that doll's book in which basically David Johansson does this completely unlikely thing because you know when bands regroup and make their comeback record, yep, they usually stink. They usually do, yeah. <laughs> um, and this one, I swear to God, really doesn't. I've played this record in the past few months. I I love hearing it. And 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 it's so it it it's not a way of, you know it was kind of a subtle way of saying well I am going to live together forever one way or another even though I'm obviously not going to do it physically well you know it's a way to do that no you know if things aren't over I know I mean Trump actually there Trump does get some ink in this book uh, even though it was conceived before he was elected. Um, with the with the Laurie McKenna piece that ends the previous section, mm. um, uh, because she brought him up, not me. I didn't want to force a country singer into saying something bad about Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I like her too much. I wasn't getting her in trouble, but she, and, and what she did, yeah, it was sort of it was anti-Trump basically, <laughs> uh, and and uh, and so that was nice. I mean, I wasn't going to leave that out. Uh, uh, right. uh, but but even in this, what continues to be to this day a horrible time which of which anyone who believes that we're certain to get out of it um, is uh, kidding themselves that doesn't mean we're not going to get out of it but it, there's no certainty about it well, uh, uh, um, and uh, just allowed me to end on a positive note that was, was what I was going to say it, it's fun it was nice to it was a fun read you could feel the joy in in your uh, writing, right. and uh, you were there from the beginning. That what, what made it even more special. Well, not quite the beginning. Not quite the beginning. I mean, there there were people who really knew who they were. Yeah. Um, 
I was uh, going to ask you what... Six months before that, uh, I, I was sent off up, up by my Newsday editor, and clearly he'd read about them in the Village Voice and was sort of fascinated by that, that transvestite mm-hmm. thing they did, and that was sort of why he sent me. And I went to see them alone, because I'm not expecting much. Mm. Where'd you uh, see them, do you remember? Yeah, at the Mercer Arts Center. Uh, oh, 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 that's a good one. Oh, that's... That leads yeah, perfectly sure. with what I was going to ask you. And this was before, this is pre-CBGB. Yes. I, I, I was a pop guy. Yeah. I believe that for the most part, uh, the great record, most of the good records in the world came out on major labels, which mm-hmm. in 1973 and four was true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was what I was there to tell people, even though this was mass art, it was really good art. So I didn't expect a thing. And I was completely blown away. I loved them. After they made me sit there an hour waiting Ooh. to see them. And I went home and I said to my wife, who wasn't yet my wife, I mean, I just was raving. And the next chance... We had to see them, which was the following weekend. We went back to the Mercer Art Center, and we sat there and waited another hour, an hour and a half. <laughs> and they were fucking great again. And I probably saw them another, at least a half a dozen, eight, ten times but, more. But it, Not at the Mercer, I think only once more at the Mercer. But then, you know, they, Kenny's Castaways and the bottom line, and wherever the <laughs> fucking went, I would go. Kenny Cast, that's them. great. Um, but the series vinyl the Mick Jagger produced HBO series didn't really capture that club um, accurately. I did, did not it. watch all of that. I, I they made it seem like, and I talked to someone who was on the scene, that's the Twisted Sisters guitarist J.J. French and he was at those those gigs as you were, and he said that the center was clean, the floors were clean, um, you know it wasn't like it was like when, Oh and, no, it was not grungy not grungy at all. No, and in the in the series, it is. It makes the floor look like, you know, oh, CBGB. Really? Yes. Oh, how stupid! <laughs> how stupid! <laughs> then, of course, the whole one reason you didn't see them at the commercial arts center anymore is that the whole building collapsed. Yes, and they they show that the, the, the broad the Broadway Central Hotel. Yeah, which I'd actually been in a few times too, because that is where some people would go live. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, the whole thing fell down. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, sometimes it's like a lot of things in rock and roll, um, you know, made out to be something. There's more of a myth than, um, you know, about certain clubs. and. But J.J. said that a lot of people were into it, like you were. Um, but there was a lot of people sitting down um this had those plastic chairs and stuff. It wasn't quite like the crowds you see today. But uh, I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, as I recall, I had seats every time I Maybe yes. you know, I was pressed, so that helped, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, they probably were, res- I don't remember the details, but I would assume. There was well, I'll wrap it up now. What, um, what's next? What's the next book? Are you working on a book? You've, you're very if prolific, I, if, so if I'm I sure. Do, if, I do an, if I do another book... Um, I expect uh, it will be a book about the 50s. And and right now, doing expert witness and dealing with the rest of my life and, mm. uh, and, and really, you know, very eager to spend 
time with my wife, who's mm. the most important thing in my life, more important than music or anything else. Um, uh, I, I have no immediate plans uh, to start work on a book, but definitely I have been thinking about it, and and a fair amount of the reading I do would feed into it, not all of it, but half of it. Um, and then I'm sure if I were to start to write this book, uh, I would do a lot more reading, and I think it would take me a long time to finish two or three years. Well, I think that you'll do like you always do. You'll capture more than just the music, but the culture in the 50s surrounding it. You know, I, I don't know exactly. I, I, I think it would be pretty personal. With Billy Vera, in, a, in, a, in his introduction to um, uh, a book called uh, What Was the First Rock and Roll Record, um, which I read a few years ago, he said something I thought was very striking. He said, everybody had their own 50s. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he said, and in particular, he says that's true because it was so much a matter of local radio so that mm -hmm. everybody, I mean, in that geographical sense, that, so that isn't everybody, it's little clusters of people. But then even within those everybodies, everybody had their own 50s. And I would, I would only feel good writing about it from my personal perspective. Okay. Which is the perspective of somebody who, A, could not dance then and can barely dance now, and B, never actually went to a show, a rock and roll show in huh. the 50s. I, though I listened and followed the charts and was completely fanatical about that aspect of it. So when was your first show, Robert? I was 13. Oh. First, the first live music I ever saw was, in fact, a Pete Seeger show. Hmm. that my parents drove me to in Tarrytown because ah. by then my girlfriend was a, a folk singer, yes. a, a folk fan, and I did what my girlfriend did. She wanted That's to a sing. pretty good I show to see. I liked, I liked it too. I liked it too, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, uh, but um, and uh, and I saw live jazz before I saw rock, live rock and roll too. Hmm. I, I, then I became, in college, I became a jazz fan, and I actually spent a lot of time in the jazz clubs once I turned 18. Uh, I went to college at 16. Um so I didn't. I think the first rock and roll show I ever saw was probably Chuck Berry in '64. I mean, mm. I think I may be forgetting something. Yeah. But it was because uh, um, I wanted to write it. I, mean, I had the idea of writing a piece about. I was just beginning my career writing a piece about Chuck Berry that never got written. But I would. I did go to see him a number of times when he was in New York. That would be a but cool that, lesson. So that's, that's that's my way, you know. I, mm. I so I perceived it as 45s okay. that I owned. Uh, and that my friends owned, mm -hmm. and stuff on the radio that I heard and never did actually get. That's how it came to me. Well, I hope you still have those 45s. <laughs> that would be I do, actually. Great. Well, no, my mother threw a lot of them out. Yeah, that always happens. Yeah. My, as well as my complete set of 1952 baseball cards. Oh. 50, well, the, the reason, you know, they're worth $50,000 is everybody's mother threw <laughs> I know. Hey, I hear stories about mothers throwing out the butcher cover. You know, they so they took one look at it and out it went. <laughs> and that's so, why. Any, anyway, uh, but yeah, I, I have to actually look at my 45s. I have some of them left, but not most of them. Well, it was a pleasure right. talking to you, man. It was an honor. And I've talked to you okay. before, but like this, it was great. Thank you Thanks so much. Bye now. Right, goodbye. Thank you, Robert Criscow. That was great talking to you. And don't forget to pick up Goldmine Magazine at Books A Million or Barnes & Noble. And you can also go to goldminemag.com and get exclusive content. Also, you can get a percentage off a subscription and 
also giveaways. So go there and then tune in next time to the Goldmine Magazine podcast. Thank you. Bye now.